Hello, and welcome to episode one of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and today's guest is Peter Curti, Director of the Culture, Prosperity, and Civil Society Program at CIS. Peter, you wrote a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to quote you, in the rush to save ourselves from the coronavirus, we are in danger of losing sight of the needs of our neighbors. Well, what does that mean for us today? Thanks, uh, Salvatore. It's a good question. And I want to just draw your attention to the fact that it was written two weeks ago. And this global <laughs> pandemic has moved on so fast that concerns that, that we may have had two or three weeks ago, have they may still be there, but they're compounded. What I wrote when I wrote then uh, was because there had been this extraordinary response from people who suddenly were going out for themselves and stocking up on hand sanitizer and toilet roll and pasta, and they were scuffed in stores, and we had to have police officers patrolling the aisles in coals. And really what I was saying was, hang on, we, we need to be mindful of one another's needs and just be with this, uh, be, be in this together. Um, since then, of course, we've had a much more serious series of lockdowns imposed on Monday with level three right, lockdowns. Right, right. And so things have toughened up, but it's got a lot tougher for many people. Right. Well, you know, on this interview show, I don't want to focus on the nitty gritty of numbers of case counts, potential deaths. I mean, we're not epidemiologists. We're not going to try to forecast that. Even the economics, let's hold off on from now. I'd really like to ask you about the morality. I mean, we're now a month into the toilet paper crisis, and I don't mean to be trivial, but if I go, when I go to my local supermarket, there's still no toilet paper, there's still no hand sanitizer, there's still no soap, there's still no cleaning materials. I was even looking for a kitchen cleaning sponge, and there are none. Now, I know that's not because supply chains are disrupted. I know that's because people must be hoarding. I mean, we're a month in. Shouldn't people be able to buy basic necessities at this point? Well, you think so. That's right. And that's really part of that concern that I have for uh, for those of us who are vulnerable. We don't need to accumulate all that kind of stuff uh, in, in, out of fear, out of panic. And what I would like to see is Australians just relax a bit and just be mindful of those who also need those essential items but can't get them because there's been a tendency to to hoard and to and to bulk buy. You're right. I don't think it is about supply chains. I think it is about the response that I want to take care of myself. And if right. that's at your expense, well, you know, that's just too bad. Well, how does the morality of that play out? I mean, you know, we, we like to, many of us believe that the family is the basis of society and the most important thing is family. Well, you know, what happens then when family comes up against society? I mean, let's face it. If you don't buy hand sanitizer for your family, that's not going to be hand sanitizer available for the whole population. That's going to go to some other hoarder instead. So, well, let's, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the decision that, a, that a, a mother, father, grandparent makes going to the supermarket is get this for my family or let it go to someone who's hoarding. Uh, what do you do in that situation? Well, I think you're touching on some really important questions here because we are in a situation that 
few of us have ever experienced before. Um, we've had uh, pandemics or fears of pandemics, such as with SARS and bird flu, uh, but governments never around the world did never respond in, in this way. And suddenly, Australia, I mean, it was unimaginable two months ago when we were marking Australia Day, it was unimaginable that we would be living like this just two months later. So we are in uncharted waters. We, most of us have never lived through anything like this. We've never lived through war. We've never lived through right, through the right. experience of, of siege. And I think what it's doing is imposing uh, a strain on our society that we need to be mindful of. I, I don't have the answers to that, but I, I do want to say it's something we've just got to be alert to and recognize that it, right. there's going to be a strain and we need to think about one another and not forget that great spirit of mateship, which is so characteristic of Australian society. Well, you, you did write, you know, and I'm sorry, I know it's embarrassing to have your own work quoted back to you, but you did write in the uh, CIS ideas column uh, a couple weeks ago, admired for our egalitarian spirit of optimism and a reluctance to take ourselves too seriously. Now is the time, like no other, for us to hold fast to our sense of mateship. But does mateship trump family? I mean, you seem to be avoiding that question. Do, do I be a good, forget, I'm American, it doesn't come naturally to me. Do I be a good mate or do I be a good parent? I don't think those are choices. I think that uh, th th those are, rather those are not uh, mutually exclusive. Obviously they're choices, but it's not, not mutually exclusive that I think that, that community and family, family, as you've said rightly, is an, is an integral part of of our community life, and I think that um, the extension of those of that of those familial bonds to the broader community, and that understanding of how those bonds sh help shape community, is, is very important. I don't think I don't see this being you know my family and nobody else. I think the family is the right, unit which right. gives a degree of cohesion, of stability. Um, I mean, and we're seeing that now that 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 kids who are living away from home have come home whenever they have been able to right. and the families are drawing together and i think that gives uh, people a strong sense of community in in the home i don't think so i don't think that those are mutually exclusive uh choices because yeah. i think the families let, let me ask you let me ask you do you, and i know you can't predict this but do you think there are going to be a lot more divorces in six months <laughs> as a result of this crisis or do you think this is going to pull people together and make them happier that's a good question. I think I said a moment ago, you know, I think we are seeing that we're going to experience a series of strains on our society that we've not experienced before. Suddenly people are living together at close quarters. Nobody's going out to work. For the most part, people are staying at home. I know there are exceptions, but people are, are hunkering down in their apartments or their homes. They're living with people around the clock. My concern is that we may well see a spike in um, in in relationship breakdown and in divorce. We might right. see a spike in domestic violence. Uh, we might see a spike in suicides. So I think that those are very real concerns. And I think it's helpful. And I know, Salvatore, you've raised this in, in various fora, that it would be good to know how long this is going to go on for right. so that we have a sense of 
of being able to pace ourselves. And today, uh, the, uh, the New South Wales are saying that these restrictions will be in place for another three months till the end of June. Well, that's a long time away, but I think it yeah, gives us yeah. a sense that, oh, okay, I can make it to June. But if this was to stretch, if this were to stretch on in, in perpetuity, we wouldn't know. And I think that would become very hard. Right. Now, you mentioned suicide. And of course, if anyone is feeling severely depressed, call Beyond Blue, you know, take care of yourself. But, but I do want to ask you about that because I haven't heard anyone raise the issue yet. Uh, do you mean because people feel isolated, people who are not with family, people who have been asked to self-isolate completely alone? I mean, what, what caused you to, to bring up the S word? Well, suicide, there are many factors that lead to uh, suicide, unemployment, uh, uh, high levels of debt, a sense of despair, hopelessness, um, breakdown. I mean, there are many. Suicide is a very complicated factor. And unfortunately, it's still very prevalent in Australian society. And uh, I think we need to be mindful of the fact that, that and, and I should say it's particularly common in normal times amongst young men who may suddenly feel that the meaning of their lives has changed irretrievably. And that can lead to feelings of despair. So I think despair can be generated in all, in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, and any of those any of those factors, I think, could be triggered in a long term crisis such as this one. Right. I mean, let me ask you about uh, something. that uh, Look. I'm going to be honest here. I'm in self-isolation. I have been for a month. I, I kind of went into isolation long before other people. But I'm going to admit, I do engage in maybe a little bit of social shopping. In that, although I should be staying home all the time, and I'm staying home except for shopping, uh, I find myself going to the store every day. And I probably don't have to. Uh, but, you know, I think we all crave a little bit of just seeing the world. Uh, is that awful of me? I, I mean, should I feel bad about that? No, I don't think so. I think we're all rather different personalities. And I think people who are more extroverted will be feeling the, the strain of isolation more than those who are introverted. I think that, there, that, that many people do have that need for, for, for connection and going to the store, uh, going to pick up a newspaper or just to get a couple of grocery items, go to the local takeaway cafe if it's still open uh, to support that business. Those are really genuine and valid things. Uh, those are, those are activities for which I think there is a very valid explanation. Right. So, like, so if someone wants to go out and get a newspaper, you wouldn't, you know, I, I know the public health advice, and I'm not asking you to give public health advice. I'm asking you to give you know, just advice from a human being to human being. Should someone feel bad going out to get a newspaper? Or, I mean, we're allowed to. We know that the prime minister said we're allowed to go get a newspaper, but should I feel bad or should I feel like, well, that's my one chance to get out of the home and I want to keep up with the world? I mean, do, you have a, do you have an opinion on that? I think it's a fine thing to do. And, you know, every day I take uh, with my wife, uh, I take a, an hour long walk at the end of the day and which allows us oh. to get out and to, you know, get some fresh air. Um, sometimes we stop at a local store on the way back if we if we need something. Um, it's nice right. to see people and to and to uh, to interact for a bit. Certainly it's nice to get out of the house for an hour at the end of every day. Right. I, I must say I, I'm I'm kind of an 
I'm kind of an introvert um, myself. And so I quite like that sense of being self-contained. That's uh, why you're on. That's why you're on TV right now. <laughs> Your introverted personality. <laughs> uh, so I, I find that's good, but it's good to get out. And, and I think, and if you, and if, if what one is unsure about it, I think you can always don exercise clothes because of course exercise is one of the permitted reasons, one of the permitted excuses or justifications for going out. So one can always go to the store in the course of getting one's daily exercise. Right. And of course we should be, clear to anyone listening, we're not advocating people go out if they're under a quarantine order or if they have been in the contact with people with coronavirus. But we're just talking about, you know, the, the, the things that are allowed. To what extent should you take advantage of being allowed to do it? And to what extent should you completely self-isolate? We don't want to see people getting into severe depression because they haven't left their home for three months, uh, three months straight. I, I mean, uh, go on, Peter. Yeah. No, no, that's right. But, I agree. Yeah, let me, let me ask you about a very difficult ethical question, and this is the cruise ships. Now, now you've talked about Australian society pulling together as a society, but of course the Artania cruise ship is sitting in Fremantle, Western Australia, with more than a thousand people on board. None of them are Australians. The few Australians have already been taken off. Uh, they're mostly Germans, I think, if I remember. Uh, are, I mean, are they our mates? I, I mean, what are we... What what do we do about them? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think the um, let's step back a bit and see that in fact <clears throat> the this pandemic has I think reestablished in the minds of many people <clears throat> the importance of the borders of the nation state. And you know there is a debate going on whether or not this is the end of globalization. Are we going to see a surge in nationalism? You know, and that will play out. But I think we are seeing uh, the the value of thinking in terms of uh, the borders of the nation state. And Australia is an island continent, which means that our borders are much more clearly defined and defensible than than the borders of many other countries. On a cruise ship. Well, we know that that I think uh, most of the cases in Australia have been traceable to three, the, the passengers on board three, passengers and crew on three cruise ships that came to this country. Right. And in New South Wales, the big spike in infections, because New South Wales is the COVID-19 hotspot, most of those infections came from the Ruby Princess. So I think there is a real anxiety about making sure that infection rates are not increased because of people arriving from cruise ships. Now, right. are they our mates? In that Australian sense of the word, possibly not, but in a more Judeo-Christian sense of, of, uh, of, of neighborliness, yes, of course they're our neighbors, but are, are we obliged to bring them into the country? Are we obliged to provide them with health care when our own health um, services are we fear under-resourced and will be put under great pressure if, if the rates of infection turn into rates of serious illness. Uh, I think it's very misfortunate, very un unfortunate indeed for those people on the cruise ships, eight and a half thousand, I think, uh, right, right. stranded at the moment. I, it's a desperate situation to be in. Should they be brought into this country? Well, I think that would depend upon uh, the availability of, of health services in, in the different states. I'm not in a position to assess that, but clearly right. if we can help people, I think it's in the spirit of Australians to help people whenever we can and we do, but if we are not in a position to do so, it probably is best for now 
that they remain in in a sort of a self-quarantined environment on board a ship where they, they're not in danger of affecting other people. But it's a difficult one. Well, I mean, Japan took a lot of criticism for keeping a cruise ship moored in Yokohama, only letting patients evacuate who caught coronavirus. And then not one after one, but a dozen after a dozen caught coronavirus from other passengers and eventually had to be evacuated. And, you know, we had this big disaster of when we would see the coronavirus map of the world, there would be 200 countries and one cruise ship <laughs> that were the coronavirus <laughs> places. Uh, you know, if you leave them on the cruise ship, is that potentially a death sentence for people? I mean, there are echoes here of, you know, of the Holocaust of Jewish refugees not being able to disembark from ships. Uh, do we want to have a repeat of that where we keep a ship moored offshore and uh, let just let people get infected uh, from each other. I mean, is, is that something we can do? Well, I don't think this is, bears any comparison to the Holocaust at all. And, and Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi Germany for, um, for what was then Palestine and who were prevented from landing by the British were right. prevented for very different reasons, uh, right. for, for a whole different set of reasons. So I think those uh, those uh, that well, comparison is unhelpful. Let but, me make a much less charged. Uh, let me make a much less charged comparison. During the 1918 flu pandemic, Australians who had fought in the Western Front, Anzacs, heroes coming home to Australia, were prevented from disembarking from troop ships because there was the uh, Spanish flu on the cruise ships. So we have had parallels, not on the cruise ships, on, on the troop transports. So. You know, we've seen parallels like this. Is the right answer, is the moral answer to protect ourselves first or is the moral answer to take our chances uh, but make sure people are accommodated? I think the moral answer is to take steps that maximize benefits for the broader community. And in a pandemic where disease, particularly one such as coronavirus, uh, the, this virus is easily and readily transmissible, and we're seeing a sharp spike in cases of the disease manifested by the virus, COVID-19, then we have to take steps to, to, to safeguard the well-being of the greater community. That may well mean that some people are disadvantaged and that may be unfair and certainly people who experience that disadvantage may be angry and upset about that but I can understand why governments are seeking to do what they can to protect as many members of the community as possible I've been reading a little around uh, the, the the Black Death that occurred in the middle of the 14th century about 1348 to 1350 right. when there was a very very little understanding of, of disease and people feared that it was born by spirits or by air. There was right. no understanding that the disease was transmitted by rats and fleas. Uh, but this terrible bubonic plague just swept across Europe, having initiated probably in India. Um, right. And authorities took all kind of very drastic steps, in, including, um, you know, holding, walling people up in their homes in order to attempt to control the disease. Now, we're not seeing anything like that, but it's a reminder. Well, we have seen that in Wuhan. <laughs> well, no, actually, I mean, physically walling people up. Yeah, well, we saw that in Wuhan with welding people into their apartments. So. <laughs> but luckily, we yeah. don't do that in Australia. We don't. But I think it, it's it's indicative of the way in which I think pandemics generate a, a, an unparalleled kind of fear amongst us, because we don't know who's got it. Will I get it? Have I got it? Will I give it to anybody else? Uh, it's very it's uh, these are unusual times for us. 
Right, right. Look, I'd like to go to some uh, questions that we've heard from uh, on our chat uh, from our audience. And before I do, look, I'd like to just ask everybody a favor. If you take a look at the CIS website, and that's cis.org.au, don't forget the .au or you end up at an American immigration site. <laughs> you should see the green theme of the Center for Independent Studies, cis.org.au. You see it up there. There's a red donate button and a red a membership button. You can become a member of the Center for Independent Studies at the friendship level. That is just being a friend of the CIS for $40 a year. For $40 a year, you know, even I'm a member, even though I'm on staff, because I like getting the member newsletters and being engaged as a member. So I encourage everyone just to go to the website, cis.org.au, Click that uh, membership button if you're not already a member. Of course, click the subscribe button down below on the CIS YouTube account. Now, I I'm going to go to some questions. We had one question, uh, and I'm going to have to scroll back up the questions to find it, which is the very broad one. How do you define decency? If we're meant to, have to, to be decent to each other, well, how do you define decency? What's your own definition of decency? I think decency. It's an interesting question. I think decency uh, is, in some ways, culturally defined, and we have practices that are uh, part of our everyday life, and some of the conventions and customs <clears throat> that govern social exchange. Excuse me, <clears throat> that govern social exchange um, are, are are often distinctive to different cultural groups. I think that decency involves, in general, um, compassion, consideration, empathy, um, a, a, a willingness to, to, as the phrase goes, put oneself in the shoes of another, and to think in terms that are broader than one necessarily one's own immediate self-interests. So I think decency is about compassion and, and courtesy, and uh, and, and consideration, being mindful of, of the needs of other people. Right. Well, thanks, Richard, for that question. And I also want to go to Isabel and Anne, who are having a bit of debate in the chat session. Uh, should we, well, Isabel saying, let's leave people offshore if it's for the greater good. That's maybe a utilitarian argument that, you know, the one death is just as important as another. And if in our evaluation, more people would become ill, if they were brought on shore than left offshore, well, rationally, of course, we should leave people on ships. On the other hand, Anne suggesting that if we don't help people on cruise ships, how can we live with ourselves if the situation worsens? How do you square those two moralities? They're both perfectly valid moralities. But how do we square them? They are. They're both valid moral positions. I think we... Squaring them is hard, and I think that I, I'm mindful of the fact that our political leaders are faced with some very, very difficult choices at the moment, and that there are trade-offs between uh, the 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 well-being of individuals and the well-being of the community, between the 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 prevention of disease and the cost that is being borne by the economy as a whole, uh, in terms of say joblessness or the failure of business. So that right. we we are living in an age like never before of particular kinds of trade-offs. I think if if health resources, let's say, let's imagine uh, a hypothetical situation where health resources in Australia were unlimited. Whoever needed an ICU bed would get one. Whoever needed a ventilator would get one. Whoever needed treatment and medicine would get it. 
well, then we could bring people to this country and there wouldn't be a problem at all. The fact is that health health uh, resources are limited. They are scarce, as are all resources. The basis of economics is that we make uh, we make uh, limited use of scarce resources, or we make we make uh, specific choices about the way in which we're going to use those scarce resources. It applies in health also. Can we bring a lot of people on board from cruise ships? Uh, who, of course, went on vacation, and this is not the outcome they expected, and the adventure of a lifetime has turned into a nightmare. I understand that. But can we really afford to bring those people to this country? And scarce health resources, which would put people who are living in this country, who are, to be brutal about it, you know, tax-paying citizens of this country, putting them at risk because the resources that they would reasonably expect to be available to them right. in our health service are not. That's very, very hard, I think. It's very you know, hard. They I, are wanna, I, I wanna pick up on that money question, but before I do it, you know, I'm American, so I'm completely shameless about this. Uh, Peter has been kind enough to give his time without asking for his usual, what, it must be a $1,000 an hour consulting fee for Peter Crotty, uh, but we still have to pay the producers for this show and we could really use your help. Now, of course, if you yourself have lost your job or you yourself facing financial difficulties, don't press that donate button. You know, you need it more than we do. But that said, if you're one of people like me who's still fully employed through this crisis and you can afford it, we'd really appreciate it. Again, if you go to cis.org.au, click the red donate button, uh, you know, every $10 helps. We'd be thrilled to have the $10 just to help defray the cost of the production, uh, you know, the electricity, everything that needs to stay on in order for the CIS to stay running. Uh, you know, Peter, you, you mentioned uh, jobs. And of course, that's also an issue. And Caroline sent us the question, as a libertarian institution that believes in small government and low taxes, how do you feel about the government response to doubling unemployment benefits and subsidizing wages? Is that a reasonable thing to do? I don't think the CIS is a libertarian organization. I think we are a classical liberal organization. Okay. And yes, we do support the notion. I think that's an important distinction because I, don't, I think we see a need for the state, but we want to see a limited state because we are committed to the, the, the well-being and the, and the prosperity and vitality of civil society. And we would like, we argue that uh, that the government should not be doing things that the community can do very broadly in broad terms. Okay, let, let me stop you. Let me stop you for a minute there. Because I think we are seeing notions of, uh, I mean, yeah, let me stop you for a minute there because we've had some trouble with your audio and seems to have frozen. So uh, let me put a hold on that. And uh, maybe, Peter, if you can still hear me, it may make sense for you to hang up and dial back in. And let's see if that works because your audio seems to have completely frozen. All right, I'm going to let them try to take care of that. I'm going to read one more question. We had a question from Leon. Oh, really? Okay, I can hear you. Oh, we're back. I'm hanging. Good. Okay. So we had a question from Leon. Is the analogy that we are a war completely appropriate or helpful? There you are. Okay. We are looking good. Uh, I'm going to assume that you're also back on the live stream. And Peter, we had a question from Leon. Is the analogy that we are at war 
morally appropriate? Is it helpful? Or should we stop all this talk about war when it comes to coronavirus? Well, I think war is an image that's used to evoke a, 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 a national spirit of pulling together, of coming together. In this country, we speak about the spirit of Gallipoli in, in the UK, where I was born and brought up, uh, memories of the Blitz. Uh, were evoked and are being evoked now. I think uh, war footing is being war imagery, war footing is being used because it's it evokes a sense of a nation coming together. Um, right. uh, people are undergoing as hardships. I mean, not not just a few people, but everybody undergoing the same sorts of hardships, and government stepping in to take a role that we're not accustomed to it taking in Western liberal democracies. Can I come back to the question that we were just talking about with small tax, small government? Yes, please, please. Because it goes to the heart of that. I think we are seeing a real challenge to classical liberal ways of thinking because suddenly governments, and remember that in this country we have a a centre-right government in office, but nonetheless we're seeing a massive expansion of state expenditure, a massive expansion of powers of the state, a massive expansion of the of the powers of the police, which I think is it, 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 all of which are cause for concern. But we are in exceptional circumstances. I think the challenge for organizations like the CIS, for anyone who is a classical liberal and who propounds classical liberal views is how, where do we go from here? suddenly we see that actually the state is indispensable. The resources of the state are necessary to keep the economy ticking over, to keep people, if not in work, at least to keep people with with a stream of income. Can we do without the state in these circumstances? It's looking like the answer to that is probably not. Uh, How we position ourselves now, I think, is a really interesting challenge. I don't think it's the end of classical liberalism, but I, I think it alerts us to the fact that there are exceptional times, there are dangerous times when we need uh, the resources right. of the state. And, right. and we are in such times now. Now, you drew the distinction between classical liberalism and libertarianism. This uh, show is, of course, called On Liberty, which is an echo of John Stuart Mill. Uh, I don't want to ask you for a broad philosophical difference, but how would those two viewpoints apply to, say, government restrictions against hoarding? Uh, you know, should governments be stopping people from buying toilet paper if they don't need it? And what would a classical liberal say versus a libertarian? Well, I think a libertarian, in, in, in broad terms, might dispute the role of the state in any in any kind of degree and would say that the state should get out of my life altogether. A classical liberal doesn't say that. A classical liberal recognizes that, that there is a role for the state, but the, we want to keep the role of the state as small as possible. When you say, I mean, another way of turning that question around and saying, you know, making it, it unlawful to hoard is to say that, is to think of it in terms of the state imposing, imposing a form of rationing. Now, when resources are scarce, the toilet paper, the hand sanitizer, you know, the pasta and the flour, when people are buying more than they need in order to feel secure themselves at the cost of other people's well-being, the state needs to step in and say, and, and, it, and it 
it certainly supermarkets are doing this, but the state needs to actually I think we are used to the idea of abundance in these great country of ours. We are used to the idea of things always getting better. Suddenly, things are not getting better. They get they appear to be getting worse, and we really do know how we, we are really experiencing scarcity. So, some form of rationing of scarce resources has to be put in place, and that's what I think we're seeing. Right. I've personally been amazed that for the last three weeks, I've been unable to buy yeast. And, and, you know, I really want to bake with that yeast. And I can't believe that everyone out there is rushed and has now become a baker just because of the crisis. But on that issue of rationing, uh, uh, Isabel asked us in the context of the ventilators. And, you know, in the United States and in Europe, we're seeing the rationing of access to medical equipment like ventilators. Isabel asks us, is it ethical to decide who lives and who dies if more patients need ventilators than are able to get them? Do you, do you auction them off to the highest bidder? Is it first come, first served? What do you do about scarce medical equipment? What we don't seem to be. I understand that question from, from Isabel. I think what we what we get is that doctors are making these decisions all the time. They are making this is what triage is. This is what triage is. It's the making of benefit most who needs it the most. Uh, this is an acute situation, but doctors are always making decisions about the people uh, and if, if doctors confronted, say, with two patients, one was a, a 95-year-old man uh, with, say, I'm, I'm making this up, but you know, a 95-year-old man with bladder cancer and a 35-year-old man who was otherwise in good health but in need of a ventilator, if both were in need of a ventilator, which would the doctor give it to? Now, if we were not in these times and we were not discussing these matters publicly, uh, I think that we would accept that the doctors would probably go, go with a 35-year-old man, and that's what the doctors have to do. That's unenviable. I, I think it's one of the real, uh, one of the real ethical problems work with all time. My connection is going. Can you hear me? Yeah, we, we hear you sort of. Could, uh, let's try just one more time. If you could go off and come back on, uh, just call okay. us back, hang up, call us back. I'm going to talk to our listeners for a moment. Uh, Simon, in response to your cheeky in-house question, I'll say if you will go to the website and make a $50 contribution to the Center for Independent Studies, that's cis.org.au, press the red button. I will read your question out on air. So, Simon, uh, we'd love to hear you uh, just verifying the comments, and we'd love to take your question. Uh, in the meantime, I am going to go to our producer, our in-house producer, Max. Max asks, in the lead-up to Easter, what are Peter's thoughts with regard to the closure of churches? And that I'm going to be very interested because, of course, many of you may be aware Peter is himself a minister. I, I'm not sure whether he's practicing or retired. I think he's a retired minister. But it'd be really interesting to get his ideas or his feedback on you know, whether we should be keeping religious communities together at this time uh, or it's appropriate to suspend churches. Uh, I know that we've had uh, our colleague uh, Robert has been holding online church meetings via Zoom, and I think that's fantastic, whether or not we can actually have in-person church meetings and what that means 
is something we really want to hear what Peter thinks. Now, we're still waiting for Peter to come back on the line. I will repeat that cis.org.au, you know, Simon, I, you know, just being cheeky, but we'd love to have everyone as a member. So please, it's only $40 to join in the friendship category. I myself am a friend of the CIS, and I hope that all of you will consider joining as friends of the CIS as well. Now, Peter, we seem to have you back. We have an important question from our producer, Max, which is, in the lead up to Easter, what are your thoughts with regard to the closure of churches? Well, it's not just churches, Salvatore. It's every religious community has had its places of worship closed and uh, uh, and people are unable to meet. And uh, I'm not actually retired. I am still active in ministry. My my okay. my principal work is with the CIS, but I'm still involved with a with a parish in uh, on the lower North Shore at St. Luke's and Mossman. That church has been closed, along with many others. Really, uh, it is. I've been I've been uh, ordained for um, for over thirty years, and this is the first time uh, that ever that that Easter has not happened. That church that that I've not been able to go to church at Easter. To answer the question, I think it's a it's a, it's a good one. I think church leaders, religious leaders, I know the a number of rabbis in Sydney who are working with this as well, are trying to maintain a degree of connection. They're trying to retain a sense of community. They're using Zoom. They're using YouTube. They're using Facebook. They're using email. They're using the phone. How do we keep people together? Particularly, how do we look after? Uh, those who are known as shut-ins, those people who who are the elderly and the frail who are not as able to get out. That's a it's a big challenge. What I think is interesting, uh, as I look around me and I speak to colleagues, is that churches are are being uh, uh, as imaginative as they possibly can right, about right. this, they, and they are finding new ways as quickly as they can to try to fill the gap. I'm good friends with the, the rabbi of the great synagogue. Um, uh, uh, Benjamin Elton and uh, Dr. Elton is doing a lot of work with his community, uh, online teaching, online right. ministry, just to keep the community together. But it's a very odd run up to Easter. This Sunday we begin uh, we begin the most solemn week of the of the Christian year, Holy Week, uh, culminating in Easter. Right. Um, it's going to be a very very different experience. Right. And I think Passover has particular re relevance uh, this year as well. Um, look, we have a question from Simon. And Simon, I apologize. I know you're out there listening. I'm sorry for uh, for making fun of you a little bit. But Simon asks a really important question here. Can we do without the state? So what, you know, does this crisis show how much we need the state? Or does this crisis show that we as a society can pull together and make things work? Well, my own view is that we do need the state and we need the resources of the state because there is no one else, no other, uh, there is no other community grouping that can command those sorts of resources. And I think we do need the state. My concern is not so much whether or not we need the state, but where the appropriate boundaries of the activity of the state are to be drawn. For example, I am concerned about the very heavy, what I perceive to be the very heavy handed approach of the police, both in New South Wales and Victoria, to enforcing the, the social lockdown. Is that a form of overreach? I think I think we're coming close to the, to the line on that one. It's not just Australia. In the UK, police in Derbyshire have been roundly attacked for using drones to spy on people going out walking, which you do in Derbyshire. It's a very beautiful part of the English countryside. 
so I think the, we need the state, but I think we don't want the state marching right into our lives the way we see it happening at the moment. That, I think, makes right, us right. uncomfortable. That's not That goes strongly against our way of life. Um, but I think we appreciate the fact that the state is there to, uh, to retain uh, order, to marshal resources, to provide financial assistance and economic support. We need the state for those things, but we don't want them marching right into our private lives. So I, I think we need to start wrapping up, but I, I do want to take uh, at least one or two final questions. So we have a question from, from Guy. You know, while we need to protect our own, Aussies are very generous with others. How do we capture this and lead in the right direction? Can Australia be an example to other countries, not just of cruise ship mismanagement, but of societal support? That gay. Is, I'm sorry. This is this is gay. I'm sorry for this is this is gay's question. Thanks. I think this work is at, that's that is a, an interesting question because it goes to the heart of what we are doing right now at the CIS. We we are as a group of researchers. We have come together to and we're in the process of of devising a very specific program. And I know, Salvatore, you've been you've been instrumental in developing this that looks that takes all the resources of our of our researchers and looks in the broadest way at this issue. We don't want to carp about what the government has done because we recognize that government had to act and had government not done enough, they would have been criticized. Had they done too much, criticized. So we recognize the government had to act. But I think we are very interested in it as, an, as, a, as an organization at the CIS in working out how do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What lessons do we learn? What mistakes were made that are, avoid, are, are avoidable? Right. Epidemiologists tell us there are more pandemics to come. How could we best position ourselves to deal with those in future? So I think it's an important question, and I'm pleased that the CIS uh, is is really in the vanguard of developing some important work on this. And I'm very pleased that the Culture, Prosperity and Society program will take a significant part in that. Right. Well, thanks, Gay, for the inspiring question. And I just want to follow up. Uh, you know, Isabel pointed out that when we asked that crucial question about the ventilators and who gets access, uh, that's when your line cut out the worst. And we kind of missed your answer. Uh, what do we do? How do we decide who gets access to medical equipment and who doesn't? Well, the... We are making those decisions all the time. Doctors are making those decisions okay. all the time because there is not an unlimited supply of ventilators. And a doctor makes these decisions in the process known as triage. They have to, a doctor has to decide, given limited resources and unlimited demand, who is going to get what? Who is going to get the ventilator? Who most needs it? Who will most benefit from it? Um, who, for, for whom will this will this be the most effective form of treatment? Those are very difficult questions. Um, I think that's one of the real moral pressures that doctors face on a daily basis. It's become particularly acute at the moment because those decisions are, are, are very public and, and all of us are taking a, a, a great interest in the way those decisions are made. How you decide whether person A gets a ventilator or person B gets a ventilator when there is only one ventilator, it depends on a, a, a number of factors, age, profile, well-being, prospects for recovery. Uh, that's a tough one. But we must remember that doctors are doing this all the time. This is not new. As we wrap up, as we you know, lead to the end of this this discussion here, 
Uh, I do want to ask you about the Culture, Prosperity, and Civil Society program at the Center for Independent Studies. What's up? What do you have on the radar screen? I mean, what sort of projects are you undertaking right now? We The program is a one that's concerned with the health of civil society. We are very committed to the notion of civil society. We want the state to take the part that it needs to play in our lives, in, our, in, in Australian society, but we are strongly committed to the place of community groups, voluntary organizations, the, the, the contribution that individuals can make by coming together without the resources of the state. So we're, we're, we're interested in that. In this particular area, we are concerned about levels of domestic violence. For example, my colleague Monica Wilkie is doing some important research on domestic violence. And we will be watching this that issue very closely. We're also concerned about something I've just referred to, which is the, the boundaries of the state. Where do you draw the line between the boundary between the life of the, the individual and the role of the state? And we want to argue in the culture program, we want to argue that you need to keep the state out as much as possible. Sure, admit the state where the state is needed, but where the state isn't needed, allow the community, allow voluntary organizations, allow civil society to flourish. So that's something that's very important to us. We are concerned in, in general with making civil, with, with contributing to a better understanding of society, making it healthy and vital. And that's the principal area of the, of the project on, uh, on this, this larger CIS project that I just mentioned that we want to contribute to. Right. Well, Peter Curdy, thank you very much for joining me on this first episode of On Liberty. We hope to have many more episodes coming up. Those of you listening, of course, thank you to everyone who's on the line. And please do hit that subscribe button. Also, if you want to get notifications of our upcoming uh, shows, just hit the notification bell and you will get those notifications via YouTube. We'll be here at 10 o'clock every Thursday morning for the duration, as long as they keep us, as long as we're able to keep on the air. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for our producer, Max Hawk Weaver and associate producer, Emily Holmes. And I hope to see everybody next week at On Liberty.